after, after he preaches, he's planning to go jog a little bit and things like that. And so, uh, <laughs> amen. Father, we thank you for this man. God, we thank you, Father, for the anointing that's on him. God, we thank you for what you have put in him and face heart for our, young, for our youth, Lord Father. And Lord God, you just got so much for him. And we just release, Lord Father, your anointing in him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, just to be fair, um, Doug had 25 pages of notes. I have three. <laughs> so um, I hope and I trust that everybody's doing great. Um, everybody's had a good week. Um, I didn't think I would go this way, but I'm going to change a lot of format because our time is different, and I'm good with that because I, I trust God. He's got some things to share today. So I want to open up in prayer. Father, I want to thank you, God, for everything you've done in my life, Lord. You found me, God. You picked me up. You took me out of places that really aren't even worth talking about, God. And I want to thank you for what you've done publicly, God. I appreciate your spirit, God. More than anything, Father, I just want to be relevant for you today, God. I know you're going to meet needs, God. I know... It's just our reasonable service to walk in our gifts and our callings, oh God. As you usher in your wind today, your wind of change in people's lives, your wind of refreshing, God, your, your absolute love, God, that breaks down walls, God, that goes in places we know we could never go, God. You go before us, you're in us, you're around us, and you're all about us, God. Use me today, God. Use me to do what you want to do, God. Use me to adjust what you want to adjust, God, to put your tender hand, God, of love on the hearts of your people today, God. I'm just grateful for you, God, and grateful to be used of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray this to you, and I trust you, God. Amen. Amen. Hey, so I had a video. It was a 10-minute video. It's different. I wanted to do church a little bit different, but we're not going to do that today. (laughs) As I said, the time is a little bit different, so um, I'm just going to kind of adjust on, on, the, on the roll, so to speak. And um, we, Faith and I were raised in a, a prophetic church for, what, Jackie, 20, well, you guys were there for a while, 20 years or something. So that anointing and that gifting in us was taught, encouraged, practiced, rehearsed again and again and again and again and again. So a lot of, there's a lot of momentum like that. So having said that, Rob... You and your wife have been on my heart for weeks. I found out by surprise I would be doing this about a month ago. And probably within a week or so, the Holy Spirit really laid you guys on my heart. I have a lot of respect for both of you. I don't think I've come up and quite said that. And I'm sorry that I haven't. But the point of the matter is I do. I know what you're doing. And it's something. What, what a daggone sacrifice. So I just want to pray over you. And I trust that God's going to speak and encourage Father, I thank you for this lovely couple, God. I thank you for the sacrifice, God, but it's not sacrifice, but it is. We know in the walking out of our lives that it is, God, but they love this little boy, God. They have your heart for him, God. They've laid their lives down for him, God. And I know you have a word of encouragement for them today, God. I'm just going to release that to you guys. Son and daughter, I say to you this day, Oh, so proud. I am so proud of both of you. 
so proud with all of my heart, says your God. And I even do this today. I announce this publicly before your family that I am so proud of all that you have done for me. And I am so proud of what you have yielded to, says God. I can't always find one who will yield, says God. But yet you have yielded to me, says the Lord. And I am with you in this venture. I know the beginning from the end, says God. And the end of a thing I say to you right out of my word is better than the beginning thereof. My love pours over you. My love energizes you. It's not about what you did yesterday or what you didn't do or what you missed or what you misspoke or didn't speak or speak. It's about me, says God. And I am just fervently happy with you and pleased with your service to me, says God. And this outcome thrills my heart, says God. Thrills my father's heart over you, says God. Always know this. Always know this. When you look at Breon, know I am well pleased, says God. Jackie, I've got a word for you, too. I was a little bit surprised, and I didn't expect to do this. I didn't expect to start out this way, but I'm just going to roll with the Lord. Manny's not here, but son and daughter, mm, and daughter, wide open doors, says God. I'm not a performance God. I'm not a what have you done for me lately God. I'm a God who is over and about your circumstances. I'm a God who knows the beginning from the end. And I've called you to be faithful to me, says the Lord. And in that I am well pleased, not in what you want now, not in the circumstances you'd like to change, says God. My door is open, says God, because you have availed yourself to me. Both of you have hazarded and laid down your lives for me, says God. And in that, (laughs) there is great pleasure in my heart, says the Lord. So please be patient. As I work in your lives, please yield to my patience. Because, again, I know where you're going, and I know where you will be. Do not not be discouraged, says God. Be encouraged. Do not compare. Do not look about you, says God. For my journey is unique for you, says the Lord. And it has specific reasons and specific purposes that might contradict what you think or what you feel or how you want it to be right now, says God. But yet it is my destiny and my purpose, says your father. So be encouraged this day. Not only am I well pleased, but my heart of love just rejoices over the both of you. I sing over you. I love you both. I am well pleased with you, says God. That's a, that's a good way to start speaking, isn't it? Jeez. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so Doug and I met, I don't know, a few days ago. <laughs> this might be my joke. <laughs> and he's, he's such an encourager. He's such an exhorter. I came here because, not because of Doug, but because there was love in this place. And, and I felt it when I walked in. I saw it in the faces of the people, and I saw it in the leadership. And, and I was like, wow, you know, no place else to go. So we sat together a few nights ago, and he, um, he said to me, uh, great, great encouragement from all his wisdom and experience. And I'm, 
I'm fully aware I've spoken publicly a few times, so I've got a lot to learn, and I shared that with him. And everything was going really good and really cool, and I really felt like, you know, built up, and I was like, yeah, this is great. And then Doug says, and we're going to meet next week, too, <laughs> after you're done. And I was like, oh, no. So, Doug, if, if I'm not there, start without me. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there'll be good things to say. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, yeah. So what, what I'd like to do, um, I want to start here. I've heard plenty of times from plenty of people in, in our family that this is a unique place. I've heard plenty of times from plenty of people, you don't find this everywhere you go, okay? And I agree. So just the cohesiveness, um, the family aspect, um, the camaraderie, um, the upbeatness of what we do, the many gatherings of what we do, you just, it's, it's not, it's its 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 own unique place. And I know God takes great pleasure in that. So when I speak to, today, when I speak to the things in my heart about cohesiveness, coming together, um, family, um, relationship, and also um, just being together. It's not because we need to get better. I'm, I have five kids. I'm so unperformance. It's unbelievable. I can't tell you, man. It's just, it's, so it's not, it's not about that. So, so I'm going to speak to teamwork, not because we need to get better. I'm going to speak to teamwork because God wants to speak to teamwork. He wants to encourage us, okay? So, and I'm going to speak to cohesiveness, and I'll drop one word, unity. Not because he wants us to do better or be more, he just wants to speak to it. He just wants to speak to it. So he's going to do that. So if you will, he traveled, Doug traveled back to 1985. I want you to travel back to 1980 with me, okay? In 1980, um, let's set the stage, Ronald Reagan just got elected. Okay, there was political unrest, economic unrest. I think I was two, one, three. No, <laughs> no I, was at, I was at U of R at the time, and, and I was not with God. <laughs> so um, anyway, so political unrest, social unrest, um, division was not only in our nation. Division was um, around the world in a, in a very prevalent way. However, um, I got to witness something that was super cool that happened. So a few years before that, my dad, Jack, he, a uh, great guy, he um, bought a one-room schoolhouse in the Adirondack Mountains for us, cabin. He was, um, I won't use that example, but he was, he was an outdoors guy, loved to be outdoors. You could put him up in the mountains for six months and he'd be fine long as he could come back in six months and see people and then go back up there again. So I'm very familiar with that. So he bought this one-room schoolhouse on 40 acres of land that went up Crane Mountain. And the sun would set on Crane Mountain, and you could sit on the property because this, the school, it was not bigger than three rows of seats here with just the entranceway. But you could see out the front doors, you look around, you see Crane Mountain. It was just gorgeous, and he got these 40 acres with it. And I was thinking, okay, well... He had the ability, he had the financial means, and he had people who he knew where he spent the next few years making it more than a one-room schoolhouse. He turned it into a beautiful ski cabin. So 20 miles south of us was a place called Gore Mountain, which was awesome. You could go up to the top and ski down all day. But 
The story is, 30 miles north of us was a little town called Lake Placid. And that year, in 1980, the Olympic Committee chose the United States to house the Olympics. And they picked Lake Placid. And we were like, why? This is great. So we got tickets. We got into the Olympic Village. We just did all those things that you can do. But the story is not about the cabin or Jack or all that stuff. The story is about what happened at the Olympics. There was a hockey team that the Americans had, and this was the days before professional paid athletes were allowed to compete in the Olympics. So European nations and teams were amateurs. They were not paid. They did not get endorsements, but yet they were given a, um, a stipend by the governments to live on. Okay, Totally different than what happens with professional athletes now. So having said all that, the American hockey team was a group of 18 to 20-year-olds. Coach was a guy named Herb Brooks. Now, the Russians were the king of the mountain in those days. They had an Olympic hockey team that had not lost a game since 1960. Not, not just the Olympics, but just a, a game. And they would tour the world, and they played the NHL, the National Hockey League. I don't know if, any, if you're all familiar with that. They played professional teams. They played professional championship teams. They played professional all-star teams. And they clobbered them because they trained all year round. They were so good. They were the best of the best of their country, and nobody was going to touch them. And they were just going to keep on going until things changed, which eventually the rules did change as far as letting professional athletes in. However, this was 1980. So our team, the American team, they, 18 to 20-year-olds, they trained for three months, three and a half months. The Soviet team had been together for 20 years. They hadn't lost a member of the team, okay? So Herb Brooks got this great idea, and he said, let's scrimmage them before the Olympics just to see, get the guys comfortable and see how it goes. And let's pick Madison Square Garden where all the eyes of the world will be on us. And I bet we'll be okay. Well, 10 goals later, and one goal for the American team, they just got annihilated, 10 to 1. They were humiliated two weeks before the Olympics did wonders for their confidence. So, but that wasn't, Herb Brooks just wanted them to get a taste. Herb Brooks was a neat coach. But anyway, they get into the Olympics. I think there's, at that time, there were 10 teams, including the Americans, okay? So I think they were ranked ninth, something like that, because they beat one team one time somewhere. They, they, they get in, they play teams like Czechoslovakia. They play um, Sweden, thank you, Finland. Um, they play all these other teams. So they start playing these teams that are way ranked in front of them. They start beating them. They don't just beat them like 2-1, 1-0. They start beating them like 6-1, 5-2, 4-0, scores like that. So they're pretty much the darling now. The eyes of the world are on them. They're the darling of the Olympics. So they do themselves a favor because they keep on winning. They get into what's called the medal round, okay? In the medal round... Um, the worst team plays the best team, and then the middling teams play each other to try to figure out who's going to get to the championship. So who do they draw first? The Soviet Union. So I'll never forget, we were supposed to have tickets to go, but we couldn't go because school. So we had to drive back. Now, that place was six hours down the throughway, the New York State throughway, and we had to drive from eastern New York all the way back to western New York. And in those days, there was no easy pass. 
There was no internet. <laughs> there was no nothing like that. So we're kind of somber, and we all hop in our cars, and we're driving back to come back to East Aurora, which is where I grew up. But then the New York State Thruway had, I think it was every 45 miles they had a toll booth. So we're driving five, 480 miles on the thruway, and we're stopping all the toll booths. And I'm telling you, it was so cool. Every toll booth, it's snowing, snowing all over New York because it's that time of year. They're holding up chalkboards at the, at the toll booths, and they have chalked in the score, the period, and the time. And everybody's honking their horns like this, going, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. But not really in the beginning because, boom, the Russians went up one nothing, and then it was 2 nothing, and then it was 2-1. And then 30 seconds, timing. It's all about timing. 30 seconds, 20 seconds before the close of the first period, the, the coach figured out a lapse in how the Russians would change their players and, and shift people around. And he sent, he did a, a shift change with a guy, and he sent a guy out there, and the guy intercepted a pass. You're down to 10 seconds left now. And I want to get his name right because he was the best. Actually, he was the best goalie in the world at that time. Vladislav Trechiak was in goal. And Trechiak did this because there's 10 seconds left. And they're the Russians. The guy picks the puck up. Trechiak is, boom, right in the net. It's 2-2. And they go in, and then all these chalkboards are up on the tollboos. It's, we're tied, we're tied. So without, and staying with respect to our time, as it boiled down, came in the third period, they were tied 3-3 in the third period. There's no way it should have been like that. The captain of the United States team gets a puck top of the face-off circle, for those who know hockey, and he just lets go a wrist shot, man. Boom, it's 4-3. They are going berserkowitz. They're up. Everybody on the throughway is just not just honking. They're like, like this when you're going through the toll booths. And, man, it was just, it was real live juice. It was energy. It was awesome. So... They end up beating them. They held them off for the last eight minutes. If you've seen the movie, the movie is supposed to be about 90% accurate. Okay? So they laid these guys in a place they'd never been before. And Trechiak got pulled after that goal in the first period. They put the backup in. And that's how they were a very prideful team. Now, I said all that, and I used them as an example. How did Herb Brooks do that? They interviewed the captain of the team, Mike and I told Josiah last night, I can't pronounce his name. Thank you. Say it again. Aruzioni. I could not figure that one out when I was looking at it. So anyway, they interviewed him, and they said, how did it feel? What was it like? And he, he, he knew. He's like, well, I, I'm never going to feel that way again. It was a mountain peak experience. And so he said, um, well, do you have anything you want to say? And he goes, yeah, I do. He said, for three months past three or four months of my life, he said, I don't think this is ever going to happen again. It was 20 guys all pulling for each other. That's what God's talking about to us, pulling for each other. We don't have to agree. We don't have to look at Isaiah the same way. We don't have to interpret the same spirit behind what's being said, behind the literature that's in the word. We do have to be morally correct. There are certain have-to-be's. Okay, I'm not saying throw the have-to-be's out the window. I'm just saying we don't always have to agree. But these guys figured out, and they had some issues, they figured out how to get along. They figured out how to pull for each other. Okay? And I'm not saying we're not pulling for each other. I'm just saying God wants to 
What did Doug say earlier? Continue to grow. He wants us to continue to pull for each other because we're going to hit places and we're going to hit valleys and we're going to hit closed doors and we're going to have to figure out how to get through them. But we will get to that later about figuring it out because we really don't have to. So, Paul, I want to turn it now to the, the Christian world, the beginning of the church. The big issue in the early church was Jewish believers, Gentile believers, two vastly different cultures. Before Jesus came, Jews would not set foot in the house of a Gentile. That was just the deal. That's just how the culture was. If they were seen with a Gentile, they were shamed in their own culture. It just didn't happen that way, okay? That's how things were, right, wrong, indifferent. When the early church was coming together, I'm not going to put it up on the screen right now, but Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were still together before they went different ways, and there was a heated contest about the new Gentile believers because the Jewish believers were putting requirements on them that were confusing them and baffling them has anybody ever been in a church or, a, or a, a setting about Jesus where some things that were said and you were confused? You came, you came away not free, but just, we don't mean to do that intentionally as believers. But these things were going on because people fervently believed what they believed. So Paul and Barnabas went 800 miles back up to Jerusalem. And in that day, there was a council that oversaw all the new churches that were being developed and being birthed at that time. The seven churches in southeast are... It's South, yeah, Southeast Asia, like Ephesus and Thyatira, those churches, they would communicate by letter to them. So Paul, Barnabas travel up to Rome because of all this heated differences going on in the churches, especially between Jew and Gentile believer. And they come before the council. And actually, they, in their traveling, there's all these recordings of miracles and things that God did through them as they were working to get answers because they couldn't solve it on their own in the communities that they were in. So they needed advice. They needed more input. Another good reason to be a team. So they went up there, and that council, <laughs> they, they consisted of converted Pharisees. They got saved. Converted Sadducees, they got saved. James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, all these guys that we know. And when Paul went before that council, he had to basically proclaim the miracles and the works that God was doing through him for accreditation from them. He wasn't the Paul that we know. He was the Paul walking it out. He couldn't just go before this council and say, hey, figure this out. He had to say, hey, look, Barnabas and I had all this stuff happen through us. God's working mightily through us. He's this and this, and these are the things that are on our heart. So we're not just coming here just saying things. We're coming here because we are really putting our lives down for Christ. So the council heard them, but then in Scripture, and you can look it up in Acts 15, it says they had a heated discussion, and it didn't go well. And then Peter got up, and it still didn't go well, okay? But then James got up, and this is part of what I want to offer. And he said very simply, he said, let's do this. Let's unstrap the burden from the new Gentile converts of all these things that they're being required to do and let's just give them two things live a morally pure life and stay away from anything sacrificed to idols that's all and that was the word of God to that council at that time so Paul and Barnabas came away 
and they wrote a letter for them to take back to the churches. And in that letter, they commended and commissioned. We just saw a commissioning. They commissioned Paul and Barnabas. And they said, the first lines are, these men have hazarded their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ, and we support what they have to say. So they put their reputation out. That was the first time he had been accredited. It's weird just to think that. Paul, good night. So anyway, he travels back down, and they go to the churches that they're starting. They read the letter with the two simple requirements. And part of the other intro of the paragraph says, in order to unstrap unnecessary weight and in order to take away from you burdens that are not yours and confusion that has arisen because of it, we just suggest these two things. They didn't say you gotta. They suggested. And it says in Acts 15 that the reading of the letter met with great rejoicing. And this is the key, great relief. They could just chill. They were like, cool, this is great. Everything's going to be good now. Of course, much more to go through. Sorry, Doug, I've got to look at my outline a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, having said that, that's another example of teamwork. Zach, if you can put up the scripture from Ephesians up on the screen. I haven't done this, so I'm going to look back. and Hey, hey, hey. All right. This is, the New Testament is all about the church getting along. The church learning how to live and be cohesive. The church learning how to step away and not have that first thought be what you think of that person. The church learning how to be long-suffering. The church learning how to figure out that, hey, I got something to learn from somebody every day. This is what he says. Living as becomes you with complete lowliness of mind. This was to Ephesus. Ephesus was the, was the captain of the churches, the flagship of the churches. Everything that flowed down into the other churches, Thyatira and the other ones, came from Ephesus. And he says, complete lowliness of mind, humility and meekness, unselfishness, gentleness, mildness, with patience, bearing with one another, and making allowances. That's what James did. He made allowances. Because you love one another. Be eager and strive. Because guess what? If you're a believer, you better just give up because you got the spirit of God in you. And he loves everybody. You, you, just don't fight it. He loves everybody. They love one another because that spirit is in them. Unless they exercise themselves from that spirit and walk away, don't fight it. It's okay to get hurt. It's okay. It's not okay to be abused, but it's okay to get hurt by reaching out and reaching out and reaching out, especially to the ones who you have that love for in your heart. Be eager and strive earnestly to guard and keep the harmony in the oneness and, and the oneness of and produced by the Spirit in the binding power of peace. Now, if I'm right, I look at my note. That word peace, cool, I put it down. It says quietness, rest, and set at one again. Now, I'm going to get ready to actually close this up pretty soon, but set at one again, that's what God's all about. <laughs> he just keeps setting us at one again. That's where he's going. That's where he's going. Set it one again. You, yesterday it didn't work when you talked to her or him. Did it. But guess what? God's spirit is quickly setting at one again. Setting at one again. That's where he's going. And we're going with him. Okay? So, now, all that stuff that I just said, that's not what was on my heart. Isn't that cool? 
here comes what was on my heart. So, Zach, can you put up, not that, but Genesis 11. It's about the Tower of Babel. Quickly, historical context. Biblical historians believe the people building the Tower of Babel built it because it was right after the flood in context so that they didn't get flooded again. It says they were building it to the heavens. So they wanted to be safe. This is, you can't prove it. You can't say because nobody's back there talking to anybody. But their heart was to get so high above the earth that if a flood struck again, even though God said, I will never lay waste the earth again, there wasn't the internet, we didn't have the communication, we didn't, that's not what was going on back then. But they built and built and built this tower. And here's what I want us to see. Now the name of the sermon, uh, sermon, the name of the talk, the name of the message is only the beginning. Okay? So he says, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people. That word one in the Hebrew means properly united. And properly united means we've learned how to get along. <laughs> we've learned how everybody's cool and we're unconditional. And we've learned how to handle things that we don't think are good. So it's not just the warm and fuzzies. It's learning how to handle the things that are challenging properly and in love too. So he says they're one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Here it is. If you haven't heard anything else that I've said, if, if I've put you to sleep, I hope not. Watch. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Watch this. He says, and now nothing they have imagined they can do will be impossible for them because they're properly united. They've learned how to hit it off with each other. They've learned how to Embrace the good, the bad, and the ugly and work through it in love over time and trust God with their relationships. That is the kind of people he's looking for because he puts that little attachment and now nothing they have imagined that they can do will be impossible for them. So, next scripture, Psalm 133. I got five minutes. We're going to wrap up. Behold and how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The word behold and how good, how sweet and how beautiful and how delightful and such a sweet thing it is for brethren to dwell. Now, brethren, in the, in the word of God, man and woman are interchangeable. So when I say brethren, I mean sisters too. So for, so for all of us to dwell together. And dwelling together means to be at ease with one another. Be at ease. Properly in unity, together and united. It is like the precious ointment poured on the head that ran down on the beard, even the beard of Aaron. The first high priest that came down upon the collar and the skirts of his garments, consecrating his whole body. This one I want to expand on. It is like the dew of lofty Mount Hermon and the dew that comes on the hills of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Mount Hermon is in the far north of Israel. Israel, as a country, never gets more than six months of rain a year. And in the north, they get even less than that. So 
in Mount Hermon when the dew came out, he wrote this to a people 2,000 years ago, okay? Their crops were dependent on that dew. So he says unity is like dew that produces the food that you need to sustain your life. He's showing his heart. He's saying, man, this is, this is what I want. This is where I can show up. This is where I can make church a good place to come to. And you want to come here because I'm here because this is going on. I know I'm intense, blah, blah. I know I do that. But I mean that sincerely. My family has figured me out. They know I'm sincere, okay? I really am. I'm just still learning how to, how to express it. So what can we do? What do we do with this? What do we do with unity? What do we do with togetherness? What do we do with figuring out how to get along and embracing each other unconditionally? Here's what was on my heart for this one. It's quick and it's easy and it's not, I'm not asking anybody to play pretend because it almost seems like playing pretend, but it's not. It's God's word. It's Romans 6 and I found an awesome piece in the, in the message. So Romans 6, right, right around, it's, it hovers in 5 and 6 and 7 in those verses. And he says, that's what, now, when we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. In some versions, it talks about being crucified on the cross with Jesus, okay? When we are raised up, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world. We are raised up. We're new. We're not who we were. We're not the stuff that doesn't comply with him. We're new. We're a new creation. So (laughs) each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace, sovereign country. We can read his roadmap, and your roadmap is your circumstances. He has the key to unlock that roadmap. It's in his word, and it's in his wisdom. Rifle often teaches and preaches about God's wisdom, and he showed us how to unlock something a few weeks ago. And if we can properly unlock our circumstances, trusting in the fact that we're walking in newness of life, here's what it says to wrap up that scripture. Could it be any clearer? (laughs) Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. Now listen to this. A decisive end. Done. So I'll ask my wife, we... Like I said, we got five. I'm not, I mean, well, we love our kids, but you know. <laughs> so <laughs> you're always growing. If you're a good parent, you're always growing. But I'll look at Faith and I'll say, honey, what are we going to do? Or I'll look at Wayman and say, honey, what am I going to do? <laughs> no. I'll say, what am I going to do? And she's wise and more mature than me in many areas. And I'm not saying that because I'm up here. I mean it. She'll just look at me and say, Well, I'm just going to yield to the newness of life that's in me. I'm going to yield to the new man because the new man already figured it out. The new man's not battling. The new man's not wondering what the heck is going on. The new man has the keys. The new man has the understanding. And we are the new man. We are not who we were. We are this new man. And that new man knows how to walk. And that new man knows what to do and what to say and where to go and who to talk to. And that new man knows the game plan. But if you're trying to figure it out from the perspective of your soul, and I'll get to that too because we sang that, it ain't going to work. Your mind, your will, and your emotions untethered from the newness of life 
man, they're just going to they're gonna mess with you. Because what you think you feel and what you think you think is not what the new man is thinking and not what the new man is feeling. He's been raised from the dead. God is not working on us. He is not molding us and making us. He killed us. He knew better. He, he got it. He understood. I'm not messing with that. I'm not sending my Holy Spirit to deal with all that. No, no. He repented of making man at the flood. He understands. But he lovingly. I don't mean it critically. I don't mean it harshly. But he raised us into newness of life. That's what he did. He raised us with his son. Okay. So, now. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. The video was supposed to have um, it was a 10-minute video on the names of God. It's, it's stellar. I mean, it's good. I just wanted to be different. I think I'd do that too much. But anyway, um, in Joshua 5, it talks about the captain of the host. So I said, ooh, because that kept sticking out at me. I said, well, who's the host? You figure angels. No, we're the host. We are the host, and he is our captain. And as I bow out of this time, and I'll probably, I don't know if we can do the testimony. I'm good with whatever you got going. But I want to read this to you, okay? Yeah, that's sign language. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> but I'll do it. I will do whatever's good. I want you to listen, listen to this. You know, Corey Asbury, right? You know the song, The Reckless Love of God? I know there's some theological challenges in it. I get that part of it. But I want you to hear Corey. This is on his Facebook page. And this is your captain. This is the captain of the team. This is the captain of the family who we want to get along together because he's our captain. And who would not want to tag home be in a family that is having him as the captain and the head? Who wouldn't? And listen to this. This, this. this will just bless your socks off. So Corey wrote this. He said, when I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. No. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. Quite so. What I mean is this. <laughs> he is utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his loving actions with regards to his own safety, his own comfort, and his own well-being. Yeah. His love is not crafty, it's not slick, it's not cunning, and it's certainly never shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike. And might I even suggest, sometimes downright ridiculous. <laughs> Listen to this. His love bankrupted heaven for you. His love bankrupted heaven for you. His love bankrupted heaven for us. His love does not consider himself first. His love is not selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away on the off chance that we just might look back at him and offer ourselves in return. His love is never cautious. No, it's a love that sent his own son to die a gruesome death on a cross. There's no plan B. With the love of God, he gives his heart so completely, so preposterously, that if refused, 
Most would consider it irreparably broken. Is there any broken hearts in here today? God's healing you. God's touching your heart right now. In the mighty name of Jesus, he is wrapping his arms around that place. If there's a memory in your mind right now, a person, he's healing. He's healing with a vigor and with a love. He gives himself away again and again and again and again. The recklessness of his love is seen most clearly in this. (laughs) It gets him hurt over and over and over, and he just keeps coming. Yet he opens up, and he allows us in every time. His love saw you when you had ill will towards him, when you didn't know who he was or what he was about. When all logic said, they will reject me, he said, I don't care if it kills me. I'm laying my heart on the line again and again and again. That's our captain. That's the one who wants us to just walk with him, lean to the new nature, grow with him, and receive the fact that he knows how to get along with everybody. So having said that, Amen. That was great, wasn't it? Amen. 